Hey, one more thing before you go. How do you manage your life when your father dies, your mother's diagnosed with a rare brain disease, and you become the legal guardian for your sister who has a severe learning difficulty as well as extremely volatile epilepsy all at once? What happens to your mental health when you're thrust into a life situation where you go from zero dependence to having two with high needs with just within a few months, all by trying to build your businesses? Well, my next guest took that opportunity to put these unexpected experiences to good use and trained to become a neuropsychologist. Stay tuned. You're going to take part in her journey through these extraordinary circumstances and learn how you too can be positive and manage your life situation as she did. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. This is One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Gemma Bailey. In addition to her caretaking, she's the CEO of three companies that specialize in mental health and a nonprofit company. Gemma has been producing personal development products since 2005 and has a library of scripts, audios, and podcasts. Her training, coaching, and products all have their roots in NLP, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, and are based around accelerated learning techniques to help delegates adapt and incorporate their new behavior quickly and effectively. She's a franchiser for a children's mental health company that specializes in NLP and alternative therapy, a little like CBT. I'm excited to learn a little more about that myself. She has 26 individuals who represent her brand throughout the country. She continues to work with clients in needs of therapeutic support using NLP and hypnotherapy while currently undertaking a master's in psychology. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You know, I uh, what an amazing journey in life that you've had. And I, as we said before we started, I'm really honored to have you on the show because of what you've achieved, you have achieved in uh, everything, your loss, your overcoming, your put into a, an extreme circumstance where we had to take care of a couple of family members with uh, different, different maladies, not just one to concentrate on, but two separate ones. Yeah. So, um, again, yeah, thank you. Honored. Thank you. And if it's any consolation to anyone listening, had you have told me that I would have been doing all of those things simultaneously before they happened, I would have said it's not possible. Um, and if I'd had the option to not do it, I fully would have bailed out <laughs> and taken whatever alternatives there might have been available to me. Um, but yeah, it, it happened. And, uh, and I live to tell the tale. So I think there's probably some important meaning in that. Uh, I think life puts us on a journey that we're supposed to be on. <laughs> I was put into a position where I had to reinvent my life as well over, over our life obstacles. But I think it's all how we take those obstacles and we use them to manage a new reinvention of our life and help move that forward with others. And you've done that amazingly. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that um, if you can take these experiences and treat them as opportunities to reinvent, then it gives you back a sense of power and control in circumstances in which you might otherwise feel like are completely outside of your control, um, which is really disempowering. You know, nobody wants yeah. to go through their own life feeling like 
circumstances are dictating what that life looks like. Whereas if you have an attitude of, okay, I'm going to work with what I've got and, um, you know, I'm going to be the boss of this situation in whatever way is possible, then um, that's always going to uh, give you back a greater sense of control over your circumstances. Yeah, I, that's fantastic. That's brilliant, actually. It, it, I think it emphasizes that we have a choice. Yes. We have a choice. We can yeah. move forward or we can sit in our circumstances and wallow in the pity, so to speak, or make the choice to move forward and make a yes. positive out of, out of that. Um, I like to start my... This is kind of uh, the, old, the old movie, the old uh, TV series, This Is Your Life. Uh -huh. Unfold your life just a little bit, if you don't mind. <laughs> So, where did you grow up? Um, so, I grew up in Hemel Hempstead, which is in the southeast of England in a county called Hertfordshire. And I still live there now, although I have lived away from here for some time. Um, and so, I grew up, my family was probably already complicated before I arrived. Um, my mum had been married before. So, I have an older brother and an older sister. And then she later married my dad and I came along. Um, and then my parents divorced when I was very young. So we spent some time uh, living in a refuge, like a, a women's shelter, uh, whilst the complications between my parents were getting sorted. My mum had given my older brother up for adoption. So I actually didn't meet him until I was around 15 years old. Although I did know that I had this older half brother. Um, and my sister, who you referenced there at the introduction, so my sister has um, severe learning difficulties and severe epilepsy. So she went into care when she was aged around 11. <coughs> so I would have been mm. about nine years old um, when she moved away from the family home. And back then, when somebody went into a care facility like that in England in the sort of 1980s, it was very much like you were putting them into an institution, um, which sounds crazy because I think, you know, when you think about people with mental health needs and you hear the word institution, it sounds very sort of 50s, 60s, you know, maybe 1970s, but they still existed in the uh, 80s and 90s as well. So I only used to see my sister very occasionally throughout the year when we would drive all the way over to Wales, which is a different country for us. And um, we would see her a couple of times a year as she was growing up. But on the most part, growing up at home, it was me and my mum in what was uh, meant to be a family home. So a reasonably sizable house, but just the two of us living there. And then at the weekends, I would go to my grandparents where my dad had moved back into. So he'd gone back to his parents and I would spend Friday till Sunday uh, staying over at my nan and granddad's house. And that was, um, although my dad was largely uh, in the pub, so he had a drinking problem, um, that was the time when I went to my dad's, which largely involved hanging out with my nan and granddad. So yeah, that was kind of the, the very, very early days and how it all got started. You know, that's, what a journey. Um, we can relate on several of those instances, actually. I grew up in a family that was, um, I'm saying this from my perspective, but it uh -huh. was very dysfunctional. I had uh, both parents were alcoholics. My 
father was an alcoholic as well, so I can relate to that and understand yeah. what you went through in regard to that as a child. Yeah. Um, he um, they divorced when I was fifteen years old. Okay. Uh, my mother, single mother, we raised us for quite some time until she remarried. I think it was about nineteen or twenty, maybe okay. probably twenty years old before she remarried. Yeah. You know, and this individual, wonderful man. You know, I, I love him. He's he, he became my dad, and you yeah. know, he was you know brilliant individual. He hard worker, and he also straightened my mother out. So oh, that's good. You know, before she yeah. she passed on, but um, so yeah, what a what a journey. Um, <clears throat> I know that you uh, have always, from what I've seen in your biography and what I've listened and watched yeah. and heard from you, um, you, know, you like helping people. Uh, had you uh, coming from from your situation? Did you have the opportunity to go to university to, to get anything like that? No. So um, I think when I was in primary school, which here is uh, kind of age five to ten years old, um, I it, school was almost like respite for me because for some of that time my parents were together but they were fighting uh for some of that time um it then became myself and my mum and i think knowing what i know now but didn't know obviously back then is that my mum most likely had something called borderline personality disorder so she was very chaotic and um I guess you would have said back in those days, she was very highly strung. So her emotions could go in any direction super quickly and then take quite a long time to settle back down again. And my mum had a series of different boyfriends when I was growing up and kind of going through that primary school uh, time period. And she would become very, very intense with them very, very quickly and it would result ultimately in absolute disaster. One of the biggest disasters that I remember, I actually had a friend over on a sleepover and um, and I was so embarrassed by my mum's behavior. We woke up in the morning and uh, we'd gone into my mum's bedroom, I think to say, can we have breakfast yet? And my mum told us that during the night she'd gone out to, uh, this guy's house who she was in love with and he did not share similar feelings in fact he'd broken things off and because she was so upset with the breakup she'd taken a a, a bucket of paint um emulsion paint for painting the walls in your house and she had poured it all over his prized red Ford Escort, which was parked outside on the driveway. Oh, no. And yeah, so she was really very chaotic and it was a, a really volatile situation at home uh, because I never knew what version of her I was coming home to. So whilst I was in primary school, I performed super well because I, I feel like I was almost hoping that my teacher would maybe take me home one day <laughs> and, and that I'd get another chance somewhere else. When I came into secondary school, so that's aged 11 to, it was 11 to 16 back then, um, 
you know, I went through the teenage stuff, so I was developing a mind of my own. But the other thing that started to happen was that I began connecting with my dad a bit more. So I was still visiting my grandparents' house at the weekends where um, I would briefly see my dad before he went to the pub. But eventually I started going to the pub with him and I started to know his friends and I started to know his friends' children. And, uh, and actually I started looking after the younger children that used to come to the pub. So they had um, uh, like a conservatory, like an extra room built onto the pub. And I basically used to use that as a crash facility. It was, I, like, I had my own day nursery running in there where I would have other people's children coming in and I'd be setting up activities whilst the parents were getting drunk at the bar. So I think that was my kind of early introduction into helping people and managing and organizing and working, uh, working with children as well. Um, and during that period of time, whilst there was definitely some value in connecting with my dad and getting to know him better, as I grew up, as I went through those sort of later teenage years, it meant that I was introduced to alcohol by him quite early on. And that definitely was not helpful to me. Um, and it meant that my um, focus and commitment to my schooling suffered for a period of time. And I did not do as well in my um in my grades as I should have done. Uh, so we have GCSEs, which were like your exams that you take when you're in um, your last year of school. So those did not go well as I would have liked, uh, but I did go on to college afterwards. So college was from age 16 to 18 years old. And that's when I studied nursery nursing, which gave me the first qualification I had to be able to work with children and young people. And fortunately, that course was so appealing to me that I really knuckled down and I started to get myself back on track from that point onwards. I could and probably in hindsight should have pushed myself a bit harder so that I could have gone on to university. I think it definitely would have made life easier to have had um, uh, higher grade qualifications. I would have earned more money more quickly. And at the same time, I can also look back and see that I did go into a low paying profession, but that also provided me with a definite degree of motivation to start up my own businesses because I'd grown up in families uh, where, you know, we, we, my grandparents were poor, my mum was poor, my dad was poor. Um, and I would um, even go so far as to joke that uh, we couldn't even really call it poor because we couldn't afford the O and the R. So we were just po. Um, and so uh, growing up in those circumstances, definitely as an adult, gave me some leverage to then later want to set up my businesses, which was definitely the right move. Yeah, what when I said earlier an amazing amazing journey, um, yeah, you just pointed all that out. Uh, that is <laughs> to grow up in that environment, to be able to push through that environment and come out on the positive end is a really good thing. Uh, growing up with two alcoholic parents, I understand the relationship yeah. with alcohol they try to present to you, and mm -hmm. uh, you have come past that in such a way that you uh, have uh, triumphed. Yeah. over that in, in a very positive way and 
uh, at least it gave you the opportunity to to uh, take that positively and and move it on you know to other people where some people don't get that chance they just fall into the same pattern unfortunately yeah yeah definitely i feel like um and most of my friends would say this too that i am the black sheep in my family um and i was super rebellious but the rebellion took me in the right direction rather than the wrong direction because they were all going in the wrong direction so if i was going to be a rebellious teenager i couldn't do what they were doing because they were already you know they were all doing the negative rebellion already so i had to do a positive rebellion i had to go the other way take that simply yeah. take that <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's brilliant that's amazing i uh People in, in situations such as yours that you've run up, I mean, first of all, I need to say this, it, the, the first time, the, this, I'm getting too excited, my words are getting all tangled up here. <laughs> it's an interesting journey through school, the way you, you just explained it to me. I do have other British friends of mine and people I've interviewed in Britain, but they've never really explained that, mm. that process of, um, of your... Um, so like like here we have elementary school, junior high, high school. Then you yeah. have uh, community college. If you want to go to that, yeah. that's the next level. And that's usually eighteen and on up. But you guys had the opportunity to do it at sixteen to eighteen, which yes. I think prepares you a little bit more for yeah. stepping into the world. hundred um, percent. Yeah. And I think your life prepared you to step in the world into a different perspective and intermingle those. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, college was really a, a massive blessing in so many ways because it, I was actually in a, a college which was quite far from home. So it necessitated finding my own way in on public transport every morning. Um, my college course was uh, part practical and part theoretical. So I think we did three days a week in college and two days a week were on a placement. And because of the nature of the course that I was on, my placements were either in a school, in a nursery, with a private family who uh, you know, would otherwise have had a nanny there. So it was really hands-on um, experience that I was getting on that particular course. And um, yeah, and, and I think college had a really <coughs> different dynamic, you know, <coughs> only really in talking about it now i think part of why i became disenfranchised at school was because I, in my private life i was being exposed to a world where i was in the pub with my dad drinking with the guys you know so i was probably feeling a bit too grown up you know i was feeling a bit too much you know thinking a bit too much of myself and then having to go back to school and have people tell you you're doing this at that time and you say this and you don't say that and you know it's all very regimented i think that's why i became really disconnected with the school environment and i did not do well uh when it came to the academic side you know i just uh i went from being an award-winning student to just about scraping average so it wasn't a total disaster but by my standards it, it definitely wasn't as good as it could and should have been however going to college they do award you a lot more freedom and you're not in uniform and you call the 
lecturers by their first name rather than sir or miss and um, if you don't show up you don't show up it's on you so I think that going to college really helped um, meet with where I was in my mind and uh, how I'd sort of been pushed to mature a bit faster throughout those later teenage years and yeah in a way going to college definitely got me back on the right track again that's great um, i think it's a uh, a very interesting and unique journey in regard to coming to where you're at today uh did your um i know you, you said earlier we were talking about your mother's health and you had recognized yeah. um the, the issues within that environment uh had you had you recognized any type of mental health um, maladies that you may have been experiencing, anything that affected you? Did you suffer from depression or anxiety or um, anything yeah. like that, that line? I think I probably had anxiety as a child. Um, and so what I, what I remember was I used to get very, very bad migraines. Um, and I would be physically sick and and I used to be very frightened of these migraines as well because I think I knew a story about my, my granddad's brother had died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage and it started with a very bad migraine and so every time I got a migraine I, I thought that you know it's some kind of like genetic thing and I was gonna drop dead um, and yeah I suffered with migraines from I would say about the age of seven right through my teenage years wow. um, though they were significantly worse when when i was younger i think as i became more independent and more in control of my life they were not such an issue um and touch wood you know i get the odd headache but i really don't get migraines at all anymore so i'm quite convinced that that was definitely some kind of stress or anxiety reaction mm -hmm. that i was having um, but at the time, it, it, at the time, it was kind of maybe she needs glasses. We should take her to the optician, and the opticians were going, "There's nothing wrong with her eyes." Um, but yeah, there was definitely something to it. Yeah, that's uh, age of seven to have migraines like that must have been a trial and tribulation all within itself. Um, yeah. Did your mother? Uh, well, get, tell me about your relationship with your mother. Did it ever improve? Did she recognize that there was any any mental health? Um, things that yeah, need to be addressed. She, she knew that there was or maybe had been something. So she'd been sectioned, um, but again, before I was around. Um, and she would, I remember her going to the doctors um, to talk about depression, although I don't remember that she was really medicated for it. Um, and I... I guess it was just more sort of within our family and even with my dad, everybody would say, she's crazy. And she would say, that's because I'm crazy. Um, so she had some awareness that she maybe experienced the world in a different way, Recognizing I think it. would be a fair way to put it. Um, and she could be a lot of fun because when she was, you know, on a high, uh, she was great to be around. And um, she, you know, she could be really funny. 
not necessarily deliberately, but she she would do some really funny things, and I would I would always have funny stories. You know, it became almost like a party trick that I would go to friends' houses, and the friends and their parents would say, "Tell us what your mum's been doing." And I would tell them stories about some of the crazy things that she'd been up to, and people would be crying with laughter at some of the things that she'd said or done. So, you know, there's a lot of um, good memories of her in that way. Um, she was also really good at taking care of people to some extent. Like she was a good, if I was sick, she was a good person to have around because she would like spring into action. Um, and she was she was a pretty high energy kind of a person. Um, so yeah, she, she would be proactive and she uh, definitely installed in me something around just kind of getting on with it. If you are stuck or, you know, you can't do something, you find a way. Now, sometimes she would do stuff looking back i go well that was crazy you should never have done that you know but she just didn't have the time or the patience or the inclination to ask for help sometimes mm -hmm. um and so you know that might mean that she was doing some form of diy that no one in their right mind would ever do but it needed doing so she would just get on with it so i definitely got that kind of just get on mm -hmm. with it attitude from her did um had you been and i'm gonna ask this question because i don't understand what sections mean when you said she was sectioned yes can you help us so understand that, that? yes yeah, so it means that um you are placed on an involuntary hold in a mental health institution mm -hmm. so she had had a period of time where she was in a um a locked hospital if you like um so there, there was something from very early on. My grandparents tell a story about how she, when she was a child, so this started very early, um, she would run away. And then uh, they lived in a tiny village. And so the whole village would be out looking for my mum, who's, wow. you know, run off again. And she would be on the roof of the house watching people looking for her. Well, as, so, as a retired law enforcement officer, I can't say that I haven't seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. They're going, where's, where's, and everybody's looking everywhere, and then having to look up, and there's... <laughs> yep, there they are. <laughs> yeah, so that was my mum. So I think she uh, she gave my nan and granddad, like, hard time. <laughs> I'm surprised they had another child. I'm surprised they were brave enough, but they did. <laughs> uh, that's Yeah, that's... My mother, unfortunately, was one of those mean drunks. So, you know, right. that's a complete opposite from, from that side of it. There, she had her good moments as well. Um, but I think that in the conversations that I've had throughout this podcast, I've had, uh, there's been a wide variety, actually, from a mean drunk to a happy drunk. Um, yes. In regard to your parents the, in some form yeah. or another. It's always that extreme, one or the other. It's either... Yes. Mean and sad, or yeah. you know, happy. Yeah, happy yeah. So My dad was definitely a, a happy drunk. He was a very sociable drunk, um, and it was 
this is what made it very difficult, I think, for anyone to define it as alcoholism because mm. he was just having a nice time with his friends. So, you know, it was never really um, part of the conversation that his drinking was um, a massive problem, even though when he was in his early 20s, he had a brain bleed and was told never to touch alcohol again. Wow. And he, um, he escaped from the hospital whilst he was still um, admitted there to buy alcohol, which he then drank in the hospital. And, and at that time, his friends and him and possibly even some of my family thought it was funny that that had happened. Um, uh, so uh, he, was, he was really committed to his lifestyle. Well, it's, it's, I, I, it is our parents, right? They, they, all, they always go, kids. They, yeah. We, from that perspective, go, parents. <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's my I mean, obviously, I'm not a young man. My, uh, my parents grew up in the 60s and the 70s when I was little. Right. Um, partying was just like a normal thing. Yeah. So they didn't really recognize alcoholism because no. it was just come to my party, come to my party, yeah. go to the party, yeah. go to the party. 100%. Exactly. Yeah. It was always, you know, come, what, what they put on TV in the 50s and the 60s in the beginning. Yeah. Come home from work, get a drink, sit yeah. down, have a smoke and a drink. Yeah. Um, and it made it like it was I normal. I think there's something quite post-war about that as well. Certainly mm. in this country, it's almost like, you know, my grandparents um, would have been rationed and then mm. suddenly there's this whole new world where everything is accessible and everything is affordable and you mm. know they've got the first tv on their street and um they can afford to go on holidays and they can eat what they like and the food that's now getting shipped into the country has never been available to them before so i think it was almost quite a sort of celebratory but gluttonous mm way of life that you know my dad then was brought up into yeah it i that's an interesting perspective from from, from there i i had never thought about it from that point um mm. but yeah i think yeah that's pretty that's an interesting perspective um at what point i know that your father passed away yeah um at what point did you get involved in like uh, uh hypnotherapy in, in nlp which we can so, define a little bit more, but did that was that before your parents had um, for your father passed away? Yeah, so that would have been back in kind of two thousand and four, two thousand and five time. So by that stage, where I'd got to in life is I had uh, I'd kind of followed the path that had been set out for me in the pub of looking after children. So um, I started nannying and working in private daycare, um, looking after children typically aged between three months and five years old, so before they went off to preschool. And um, because I had had such a good experience at college and I'd done really well, it was a good, I guess, a good ego boost. Um, and some of my confidence in myself started returning and I, I knew that I was good at what I did. The downside is that when you're working with young children, uh, providing routine is super important. So 
pretty much every day is the same. My brain does not enjoy this. So after kind of, you know, six months in a job, once I've, I can do it with my eyes closed, I would get bored and I'd end up moving on quite quickly. And as it happened, I worked my way up to management by the time I was 24. So at the age of 24, I was um, running a private day nursery for the largest childcare organization in the United Kingdom. And I was their youngest ever manager. So I peaked a little bit too soon. And it was really from that point, I was thinking, I can't do this for the next 40 years of my working life there has to be something else out there. And because of the nature of uh, not having done very well in my GCSE exams and having this very niche qualification in nursery nursing and working with children, it really um, just kept me in that industry. I couldn't actually see a way out or a way to sidestep and get into anything else whatsoever. So initially I started looking at NLP, which stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming. So the neuro part relates to your thinking, the linguistic part is your language. So how you communicate with other people, but also how you talk to yourself inside your head as well. And the programming portion relates to how we um, consistently do the things that we do, the habits that we have and the patterns that we follow in our lives. And I came across it because I was watching a television program, um, having been signed off from work for a month with appendicitis. Now, there are two stories I can tell you about the appendicitis incident. Um, the first was, so having been signed off for a month, uh, one of the first things I did was I started thinking I need to get out of my current career and find a way to do that. And initially I thought I need to set up my own day nursery. So I actually wrote letters to all the schools in the local area saying um, I'm setting up a private day nursery and I would like you to give me the grounds on which to put it. I would like you to pay for the building. I would like you to advertise it to the parents who already come to your school who have younger children. Um, and I'll give you a share of the profits. I, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I don't know where this idea came from. It was super cheeky. And, you know, back then the internet didn't exist. So I was going through the yellow pages, you know, right, it's kind of handwriting all these ad uh, school addresses out. Anyway, one of them asked me in for a meeting and I was terrified because <laughs> I didn't think anyone was going to take me up on it. Um, and then it started to feel like, oh my God, this might actually happen. This is a reality. You know, they were super interested in the idea. And then I got scared. Um, the second thing that happened so, and I'm just going to say, I'm kind of putting a pin in that because obviously I did go on to set up businesses later. Um, but yeah, that was probably my first taster, if you like. Um, so the second thing that happened was I was watching TV one day and I saw um, it was a, a short um, series about a lady who had something called agoraphobia. So she hadn't left her house for years because of um, this anxiety disorder. And she'd had all sorts of therapies. She'd had counselling, psychotherapy. Uh, she'd worked with a psychologist. You, you name it, she had had it. And some of it had helped a little bit, but she still hadn't left the house. 
And then on the TV show, they had um, a guy work with her. So it's a guy called Paul McKenna, who um, was famous in the UK for, for stage hypnosis. So he was already famous, but he was famous in a more comedic way rather than a serious one. Anyway, he had learned this um, NLP stuff and he went to her house, spent the day with her, um, gave her some strategies, taught her some NLP techniques. And then they filmed her walking along the embankment, which is the uh, riverside of the River Thames in London, to the film studios and then up to the studio for her interview. And I saw that and thought, well, that's some good stuff. And if it can sort her out, if it can get her out of the house, it can get me out of my job. <laughs> and yeah, I started researching it from there. That was how I got down that rabbit hole. That that works. That's a an, an, <laughs> that's a very unique way of uh, getting hit right in the face with. Yeah, I like that. I want to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is I know that you you is does the NLP and hypnotherapy go hand in hand, or are they two separate things? They are separate things, but there is some crossover, and I would say the crossover is in um, the linguistics portion of it. So when you're using hypnosis, you're very conscious of what you're saying and how you're saying it so that you can help someone achieve an altered state um, which might be to relax more or um, you know to sometimes be more energized um, and we use language in a very similar way in NLP so there are definitely some assumptions that cross over between the both of them um, and for that reason quite often when people do one of those trainings they end up also doing the other one shortly afterwards for doing both yeah I I'm familiar with the hypnotherapy and, and, and hip, hypnosis in general um, yes I'm a certified investigative hypn hypnotist not a hypnotherapist but right. hypnotist where we used to regress people back to crimes, the violent crimes especially, to oh, kind wow. of work them through it, work around it, and see if we could um, evoke a better clarification of what took place. And, and did it work? It did, actually. And about 98% of the time it worked because we were wow. able to take those individuals back to yeah. that situation, put them in a more relaxed state. Um, this has been a while ago, so I'm gonna, I'll date myself here. We would we would tell them to treat it like uh, watching a VCR, you know, having a VCR mm -hmm. remote and a VCR. Yeah and uh, being able to stop it. And then whenever yeah. you got to, to, you know, put yourself outside of it, and whenever yeah. you felt uh, that you were being threatened, you could stop it, pause it, yeah. Yeah. take a moment, and then understand that you're, you have control. And yes. then go back through it, and then we were able to get people to, it wasn't, back when I was doing it, it wasn't necessarily allowed in court at sure. that time, but yeah. it, it allowed them to, kind of go, yes, I do see uh, a license plate that I mm -hmm. didn't think I remembered. And, you know, can you tell me that license plate? And that helped us to kind of yeah. narrow down. And even though it wouldn't go into court, the, the fact yeah. that we were able to get a license plate, which eventually led to a suspect being arrested yes. in regard to that particular incident, you yeah. know, it, it that's just one minor example. But yeah, it, it was really, it was very interesting. I really enjoyed doing it when I did it. Yeah, um, that's amazing. So I understand it from that perspective. Because, yes, and, and I know that it works from that perspective. And yeah. um, do, does meditation or anything come involved in that? 
Yeah, kind of. So meditation tends to not be as deep as hypnosis. Hypnosis is a bit closer to sleep. So the way I describe it to people is if you've ever had the experience of falling asleep with the television on and you know you've left the television on and you know that you really should get up and switch it off, but you just can't be bothered. And then it sort of feels as if what you're hearing on TV is in your dream and it's like you're here but not here. The state of hypnosis is quite similar to that. So it's the bit right before sleep, whereas meditation tends to be a bit lighter. So meditation is closer, typically a bit closer to being awake than hypnosis would be. Um, and I use it in a therapeutic capacity. So that might be to help people with, I mean, these days it's a lot of anxiety. Um, when we had the smoking ban that came into the UK, so people were no longer allowed to smoke in public um, places like restaurants and buses and cinemas, which before that you were always allowed to do. Um, so I did a lot of quit smoking sessions um, at one point in time. Um, sometimes I might be working with people around relationship challenges. So perhaps they get jealous very easily and that's you know, proving to be very disruptive for their relationship. So they want to perhaps just tone down some of their unwanted emotions or ramp up some of their more desirable emotions, such as feeling happier and more confident. Um, and I was actually using the hypnosis uh, more so than the NLP when I first qualified, although I did do both um, simultaneously. I redid my NLP again a little bit later on because I wanted a slightly more structured um, teaching style so that I could wrap my head around it a little bit better. Um, and the way that NLP differs is it's more cognitive. So with hypnosis, typically the person has their eyes closed. You know, it's much more of a sort of um, relaxing. You might say more of a passive experience where you're being led by a therapist or a practitioner. Whereas with NLP, it's a lot more proactive. So you are in conversation with someone and examining the thoughts that they think and then looking at the structure of those thoughts and perhaps how they're telling themselves that thought inside their head and questioning, well, is that the most useful thing for you to say to yourself? If you said it in this way, would it make the thought better or worse? So, you know, a simple example could be um, somebody says um, life is hard. That gives you an instant representation of an experience. You know, if you say it's hard, it's like, dush, you know, there's a brick wall there. Whereas when you say life is not easy, feels a bit more fluid, you know, it's a bit more swishy um, and it makes people feel a bit freer and a bit lighter. So sometimes we might be examining the thoughts that they say to themselves, how they're communicating those thoughts externally and the impact that that has on the people they're communicating with. So if they're not getting good results from other people, you can either blame the other person or you can go, well, what is it that I'm communicating that causes them to then react that way? So you can make the adjustment there. Um, sometimes within NLP, we are working with uh, raw emotion rather than the cognitive stuff. Um, so today, for example, I've had a client who is a gymnast um, and will one day be, without question, will one day be an Olympic gymnast. Um, 
and he has high levels of anxiety, which is not ideal for if you want to be an Olympic gymnast. Um, so I've been teaching him a strategy where you recall positive emotions from good memories that you've had, good experiences from the past, and you um, uh, choose a, an action such as pressing on your knuckle whilst you recall the good memory and get the good feelings back. You do that several times over with several different positive memories, which evoke several different positive emotions, touching on the knuckle each time you do it. And then later, if you need a burst of good feelings, you just need to touch on the knuckle. And for your nervous system, your neurology, it brings back all of those positive emotions that were connected to the good feelings. So you can very quickly start to take control of your emotional state as well. So we've got all these different sorts of um, we call them strategies or techniques in NLP that we teach to clients based on what experience they want to be having or what experience they want to be having less of. Um, and these strategies and techniques are ones that oftentimes bring about a result there and then in the room. Other times they need to put in a little bit of practice and just get it a bit more hardwired. Um, and uh, ultimately, I guess like a lot of things, the more um, open-mindedness and belief they have that this is an intervention that's going to be helpful for them, typically the better it works. So yeah, that's how I sort of bring NLP and hypnotherapy together. It's an amazing opportunity to manage um, life. Uh, you know, I mean, as you said earlier, life isn't easy. Sometimes life is yep. easy, sometimes life is not. These yeah. are... Uh, it's an amazing opportunity to use these tools to help to manage those life situations, I think, in a very positive way. Um, yeah. I like how you you use the crossover on, on all of those methodologies. That's a nice alternative um, option. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me, I'm sorry. No problem. <clears throat> I'm still getting over an upper respiratory chest cold, so forgive me. Oh, no problem. Um. Uh, when I mentioned earlier, and in part of your bio, you talk about uh, the alternative therapies such as CBT. Mm, yeah. Similar to CBT, what is CBT? So CBT stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy. So a little bit like NLP, it's a suite of different tools and techniques. It differs in that with CBT, it's really about taking control of your thinking. Um, and so one of the things that often crops up um, in the work that I do where I might bring a CBT element into it is when uh, people have a tendency to be very um, black and white in their thinking. It's either all good or it's all bad and there's nothing in between. And the reality is that life is everything in between. <laughs> it's very rarely one extreme or the other. Um, and so when you have someone who perhaps is feeling very anxious about going into a new work situation or um, something that's going on in their life, you'll find that they're, they're like a pendulum just swinging from one extreme to the other. What we would do in CBT strategies is to go, okay, let's look at the weird gray area in the middle so that we can start to see what actually might be a bit more realistic. And then the other thing that I like to bring in with that is not just let's think about the future as either being extremely good, extremely bad, or, you know, somewhere in the middle is to go, well, let's plan for the contingency. Sometimes life does throw difficult stuff at us and those things that you think might go wrong 
realistically might happen. They might go wrong. But if you've already pre-planned how you would deal with them and what your response would look like, then you're already um, set to be able to brush that off and move forward rather than having that bring you down. Right, give you, uh, it's, I think it sets a standard for you to, again, manage. I mean, I, I have used that yeah. term in my own uh, lifestyle because of my autoimmune disease and my situations. Um, you know, I've learned to manage my health from a different perspective. And uh, yeah. I don't call it a, I don't call it a disability. I don't call it a, you know, um, a challenge. Although some days mm -hmm. can be challenging. I call, you know, yeah. those days challenging, not necessarily my, so, you know, from, to, to help our listeners and viewers understand a better understanding of this, uh, from my personal perspective, uh, those tools that you just mentioned uh, would provide a tool mm -hmm. chest for you that you can open up yeah. and utilize each and every day to help you yeah. make a, a positive choice each and every day. I think that's, um, yeah, that's cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I know that you lost your father. In you, how did you become a caretaker for your mother and your your sister? Um, so it seemed like everything happened in relatively quick succession. Um, I saw a, a meme this week. Is you, you might be aware that in the UK last week we lost the Queen. Um, she passed away. Yes. And I, I saw a meme on Facebook, which was not directly in relation to the Queen, but uh, is is part of it. And it said, "I'm I'm getting tired of being another uh, part of another global situation." And I thought, "Yeah, I fe I felt like that for a really long time now." <laughs> you know, it is. Um, it's so. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. I was just going to say. So for me, it felt like things kicked off. Um, when I moved back to Hemel, so I, I mentioned earlier that I uh, I was born here and I grew up here and then I moved away for a little while, not far, but far enough. And then I came back here and uh, my businesses, businesses had always been based here. So it was really, you know, I was returning and I was um, planting roots. And I came back here in the May and by October my dad had passed away after having several um, dramatic rushed into hospital, blue flashing lights types of scenarios. So it wasn't entirely surprising. It was um, not great timing, I guess, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure if he thought about that, um, but it, it wasn't great timing. You know, I had this new building that I was renovating for my businesses, a new building that I was renovating for me to live in it. So the home portion was getting renovated as well. And then suddenly, um, as his uh, only child and his next of kin, I was completely responsible for um, clearing his debts, selling his belongings, selling his car, selling his home, and all of these things that I'd never done before, um, arranging the funeral, uh, dealing with debt recovery people, um, and it was very, very overwhelming. And I knew that it would be, so I, I'd been dreading it. I knew it was coming, and I was dreading it. And the day that he passed, my 
I, I phoned my mum, even though they were divorced, uh, I phoned my mum to say, just so you know, my dad passed away today. And the first thing she said was, how much money do you think you'll get for selling his apartment? Mm. And I thought, that's that's not quite the right response. <laughs> that's not what you're supposed to say in this situation. And then later that evening, she came to my home and I was bawling my eyes out, you know, I was a mess. And I opened the door and she said, Nan and Granddad said I should come and see if you're okay. And I said, well, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. And she said, well, I don't mind coming in, but can we watch The X Factor? And again, I thought, this is not the right response to this situation. And over the following months, there were just more and more things that were happening with her where I was thinking, that is not the right response to this situation. Mm -hmm. And she was becoming more emotionally detached, uh, emotionally disabled in a way, I think would, would be an appropriate way to put it. Um, and she had always been quite perceptive if I was um, moody or upset or, you know, she'd get the vibe. She was not getting any vibes from anyone or anywhere uh, from that point on. So I, I, I had an inkling that things were not okay. And I'll be honest, Michael, she also became super annoying. You know, she really wouldn't leave me alone. She'd retired from work and she was showing up here, there and everywhere and um, wanting to be involved in everything. But, you know, I go to work, so it's mm -hmm. kind of not okay to have her knocking on my office window when I'm there with a client. So there was just like the boundaries were getting really fudged and a bit blurry. And eventually I spoke with her parents and they said, no, she's really annoying us too. <laughs> Which coming from them, you know, given how patient they'd been with her, it, it really meant something. And then I spoke to her sister and her sister told me about an incident where they'd gone away on a trip together. And my mum had stepped out in front of a car um, when they were crossing the road. And my auntie had uh, really shouted at her and said, um, you know, what are you doing? You're not looking where you're going. And it had become really hostile between them really fast off the back of that. Um, and so my aunt had definitely noticed that her sister was changing as well. Um, and I ended up taking her to her GP. But before we went to her doctor, I wrote to them and said, this is what I think is going on. Mm -hmm. I'd already researched the bottom out of it. And I already had a good idea about what we were dealing with. Um, so, yeah, we went off to the... Uh, her, her local doctor and he did a standard dementia test which is you know do you know what the year is do you know the name of the prime minister and of course she aced it it was all you know she passed it all fine memory is fine and I was trying to say it's not her memory it's her personality <laughs> that's the problem um, and he referred us to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist met with her on a one-on-one -on -one and um, wouldn't, wouldn't let me into the appointment. And so after the appointment was over, I went in to speak to the psychiatrist because I thought she needs to hear from me because I'm, you know, I'm the one who's seeing all of this stuff. 
Um, and the psychiatrist said to me, is it possible that since you've moved back to the town, you're maybe just feeling a bit overwhelmed and that it's actually not your mum that's got the problem, but it might be you. And I said, I think she needs a brain scan. Um, and uh, the psychiatrist said, well, you know, I think she's fine. It's not a good use of resources if we send her for a brain scan and, you know, very expensive to get an MRI. And I said, um, I'm not leaving your office until you agree to give her a brain scan because I was so sure that something was wrong. Um, and eventually we settled on a CT scan, which is not a superior as an MRI, but the psychiatrist was so sure that the CT scan was going to be fine, she discharged her from the clinic before the results came back. So the results were returned to her regular doctor who said, I have no idea what this means, but it looks like there's some spaces in her brain that shouldn't be there. So now we're going to send you off to a neurologist. And we, uh, we went to see a neurologist, which probably took another six months to get that appointment wow. um, because it's all through our, you know, we have the National Health Service, so it's free, but it means that you're waiting for, you know, long periods of time. Um, and that then really got us on the journey of um, some much more thorough psychometric testing, MRI, um, they uh, did a lumbar puncture and all sorts of tests all, all in one day at uh, a very um, prestigious hospital in London. And they said at that stage, we think that it's something called behavioral variant frontal temporal dementia, which is a very rare uh, brain disease. And it's not like regular dementias. It doesn't really affect your memory but it affects the way in which you behave, your emotions, mm. and eventually it starts to look a lot like something called motor neurone disease or ALS, um, other people know it as. Um, yeah, and that was um, that was it. That's when we got on the journey. You know, it's, I, I think, I have to say this out loud myself, I, I think that it's, it's not, not only does it happen there in, 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 in Britain or in the United Kingdom, it happens here too. Um, my father-in-law was misdiagnosed uh, for years, saying that he had Parkinson's disease when he right. in actuality had dementia, Lewy body dementia. Oh gosh, yes. And, so, um, so. so he's been treated for Parkinson's all this time. In the meantime, yeah. he was uh, states away from us, several states away from us. Yeah. And uh, we thought he just had this Parkinson's, he had it under control, he had medication yeah. and things like this. When in reality, he was deteriorating over years, a couple of years, uh, with Louis body dementia. And we didn't know that until we finally brought him down here with us. Yeah. And took him to the Barrow Neurological. It is only in relation to, to understanding how the, uh, the point that, that if you feel like you did, like we yeah. did, that yeah. your loved one, um, there's something else wrong with them and that the yeah. doctor is misdiagnosing them or yeah. not wanting to diagnose them correctly. Take yeah. the opportunity to go get a second opinion, go somewhere yeah. else, get it done any yeah. way that you can. Because David had, uh, the, again, Louis body dementia. We brought yeah. him down here in the, the old cliche, then look at time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the we had eighteen months with him, with right. it, and we became caretakers for him for eighteen months. But it was it de- quickly, rapidly deteriorating eighteen months instead of what we could have attacked a lot sooner. Sure, if we would have been more adamant about yeah. saying, I think that there's more to what your diagnosis yeah. is, and you're yeah. treating him wrong. Yeah, just like in your case, something could have been done yeah. a lot sooner if it wouldn't yes. have taken as long, or if you wouldn't have pushed the issue and just went, okay, fine, I'm going to go home. You know, it could have been so much worse. So for those 100%. of you that are listening and watching, if you have a loved one that's experiencing situations where you feel that they're not doing it correctly, it yeah. is your right to go get another opinion. Yeah, definitely. And and I would echo that and say stamp your feet and like be a pain in the butt. You know, just yes. you just have to. Um, because it. you won't you won't sleep properly yourself if in the back of your mind you've got this nagging voice which is saying something's still not right here yeah. we still haven't quite hit the nail on the head yeah, so it's it's I have my different opinions apart in the medical situation because I've gone through eight operations and some similar situations to myself yeah. uh, and I have to be careful what I put on air because yeah Gratefully, I'm heard in <laughs> many countries. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say my personal opinion. <laughs> yeah. um, real quick, let's talk about let's talk about where people can reach you and how they can get more involved with you. I know that you've written a couple of books, yeah. so if you can yeah. uh, throw those in there really quick too, I really appreciate that. And you became an author, and you've got some books out. But uh, the, your uh, business is people building. And you have a podcast and you have coaching business and so forth. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, So I have a book which relates to my business, People Building, which is called Creating Trance and Hypnosis Scripts. So you've heard me talk a little bit about hypnosis today. The book is really a guide to being able to create sessions of hypnosis. And it's a book of suggestions and um, scripts or stories that you can use uh, yourself or with people that you would like to help them achieve um, a a trance state and to make some positive changes. Um, My book actually just reached a um, a milestone, a sales milestone just a couple of weeks ago. So um, it ticks along slowly. It gives me a little bit of pocket money, um, but it's a, uh, it, it's been out there. It's on Amazon. It's basically anywhere you can buy a book. So it's called Creating Trance and Hypnosis Scripts. My second book was a self-published book. Um, and this one relates to one of my other businesses, which is called NLP for Kids. Um, and that one is the application of neuro-linguistic programming which again, I've told you a little bit about today, but specifically for children and young people. And that book is a guide for parents and professionals who are looking to help young people to stop anxiety and grow confidence. And so that's the title of the book, Stop Anxiety and Grow Confidence. That one's available on Amazon. Um, And yeah, if you're a parent or you're a professional working with children and young people, you're concerned about their mental health, that is the book to get. Um, More generally, if you are interested in um, coaching strategies for personal improvement, um, probably the best resource there is going to be from People Building, and that will be the People Building podcast. So the early podcast episodes actually share with you different strategies and interventions that you can apply to yourself or to more covertly use with people that you are close to that you want to positively influence. The more recent show 
uh, series is called Extraordinary People. And the Extraordinary People series is exactly what it says. I'm talking to people who have been through um, immense levels of adversity in some cases, and not just come out the other side and live to tell the tale, but have actually thrived in spite of what happened to them. So if you want to learn more about resilience and uh, the power of positive mindset and how you can apply those skills to yourself, then there are some cracking episodes. Uh, some of my personal favorites are um, with Ashley Braxton. So Ashley is the niece of Tony Braxton. Um, she grew up in an abusive family and has gone on to become a coach herself and is just the most amazing, lovely, and funniest young lady um, that you could ever wish to meet. So I definitely recommend that episode. Um, there's an episode with um, uh, also John who did the first one. He was in an incident where he was um, almost murdered whilst he was in South Africa. Um, helping out in a, in a resort where he was teaching. So he was teaching um, young black people there and he was attacked by a group and almost lost his life. Um, and again, has come out the other side of it, applied learnings from that experience and has gone on to become an amazing coach himself. And probably my all time favorite is uh, one of the more recent ones, a lady called Sarah Im. So Sarah uh, was a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields back in the 1970s. And she tells the story of how she worked in the killing fields for six years or more um, after being separated from her family, not knowing if they were alive or dead, eventually plotting her own escape, finding her family, and then further escaping the country and setting up a brand new life in America. Um, so yeah, if you, that one's quite high drama. And there are some moments in that particular podcast where I am on the edge of my seat. So if you want to learn from some people who have really been through it, then you must check out the Extraordinary, Pe Extraordinary People series, which is from the People Building podcast. Yeah, that's a brilliant episode. I listened to it myself. I would highly recommend it as well. Uh, I'll make sure that all that's in the show notes as well. Uh, I know it was on screen here for people that are viewing this, but I'll make sure those are in the show notes as well. And uh, we'll all of your uh, information to contact you, your website, your YouTube channel and everything. And I will make sure to put the books in there as well because I didn't put them into this episode currently, but uh, I'll make sure that they get put into the show notes too. Perfect. This is one more thing before you go. So I need to ask, do you have any words of wisdom before we go? Oof, words of wisdom. Um, I think my words of wisdom um, largely revolve around uh, letting go and moving on um, because I feel like, in a sense, I wasted some of my life feeling bitter about the fact that I had a tricky start in life. And I was angry about that for a long time. And in some ways, the anger was good because it gave me motivation and it made me want to get out of my situation. But you know what? It's a heavy thing to carry around unnecessarily. And after, uh, well, both my parents passed away. Um, and in a sense, I was kind of uh, free to get on and live my life the way that um, I might have always wanted to. So, you know, I would be lying if I said there wasn't some 
um, some weird sense of freedom that came with that um, in mm. finally being able to be who I wanted to be and not just their perception of me. Um, but I think that I probably could have done all of that an awful lot sooner if I had just let go of what was and sp spent more time focusing on the what is. Uh, so yeah, my words of wisdom would be around giving yourself the opportunity and permission to let go and move on. Brilliant words of wisdom. Gemma, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate your time and your patience, your wisdom, your thank words you. of encouragement, your, your uh, pathway to uh, healing. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us as well. And uh, I'm honored. I hope we can have another conversation down the road. Me too. I loved it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. One More Thing Before You Go, established 2010. All rights reserved.